0: Hi, I'm William Bernhardt, and this is Chapter 28 of the Oki BookCast.
1: When I stepped out into the bright sunlight from the darkness of the movie house, I had only two things in my mind. Paul Newman and a ride home. Mr. and Mrs. Thursley of Number 4 Privet Drive were proud to say that they were perfectly normal. Thank you very much. It was a bright,
2: cold day in April. And the clocks were striking 13. To the red country and part of the gray country of Oklahoma, the last rains came gently, and they did not cut the scarred earth. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Chapter 28 of the Okie Bookcast. I'm Jay Hall, and I'm committed to connecting curious readers like you with your next great read. Before I introduce you to my guest, just a quick reminder that you can get your copy of the 50 Essential Oklahoma Reads list by visiting okiebookcast.com 50reads. The list includes work from incredible Oklahoma authors like Bill Wallace and Billy Letts, as well as authors from all over the country who tell Oklahoma stories, including Sam Anderson, David Grand, and John Steinbeck. There's something for everyone on the list, from fiction to poetry to books for kids. Check it out at okiebookcast.com slash 50reads, and let me know about the favorites, old and new, that you find. My guest today is one of the authors on the 50 Essential Reads list. William Bernhardt is the best-selling author of over 50 books, who has sold millions of copies in his three legal thriller series, featuring Ben Kincaid, Daniel Pike, and Kenzie Rivera, respectively. He's also written several standalone novels, including his most recent book called Plot Counterplot, which is available now. Beyond fiction writing, Bill has authored two books of poetry, with a third on the way, and a series of books on writing fiction. He's received Distinguished Author Awards from the University of Pennsylvania and Oklahoma State University, is a two-time winner of the Oklahoma Book Award, and in 2019 received a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Oklahoma Center for the Book. In addition to his work as an author, Bill founded the Red Sneaker Writer Center to support and develop authors as they work toward their literary goals. The center offers small group retreats, an annual cruise, WriterCon, an annual conference in Oklahoma City, and the WriterCon podcast where Bill interviews authors about specific topics helpful to writers. As if all this weren't enough, Bill also works as a publisher through his Babylon Books imprint. As you can imagine, our conversation covers a wide range of topics, everything from Bill's work as an author and his focus on writing in series, to supporting emerging authors, to skydiving. There's a ton in this conversation for both readers and writers, so please enjoy my conversation with best-selling author William Bernhardt. Bill, thanks so much for uh, sitting down with me this afternoon. There's a ton of things I want to talk to you about, but I want to start with just you. Tell us a little bit about your backstory and what led to you becoming a writer. You know, when you're in the
0: writing world, when people ask about you and ask for your backstory, (laughs) right? (laughs) Uh, You know, I grew up in Oklahoma and uh, always wanted to be a writer, at least as far as I remember. My mom says I wanted to be a writer when I was seven. And I know that sounds incredible, but she's my mom, so we got to believe it. That's right. right. I know that at any point, uh, I was always focused on that, even in school and college. Sadly, had not written that big blockbuster bestseller yet by the time I was wrapping up college. So I figured I better think of something else to pay the bills, which drew me to law school. But, you know, that turned out to be a good deal, too. Even for the writing, it gave me a subject matter that I've plumbed over and over again. (laughs) Uh, for book material and milieu and plots and whatnot. So, you know, it's all good. It gave me something I could do during the day while I was writing those early books and trying to market them, which, you know, we're talking the 1980s at this point, Mm. and it was Completely different world, sticking three chapters into manila envelopes with return <laughs> stamped envelopes for, so that they could tell you no thanks or not for me or whatever. But I kept at it, which, you know, is really the main thing, I think. Uh, I got more than 300 rejections during a 10 year period. Oh, wow. Well, there's a reason it was being rejected. It was terrible. <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing, but over time, the more you, the important thing is that you keep doing it. Right? You keep writing and putting things out there, and eventually, it got at least semi-publishable, and I got the attention of an agent. Wonderful, Esther Perkins, no longer with us. And, and I want to make this point because I, I know a lot of writers and aspiring writers listen to your podcast. Yeah. Uh, she was a great person. She'd been in New York. She'd basically retired, gone to Childs, Maryland. She was not with a big firm. Mm -hmm. She was not a big power broker having lunch with Big Shots every weekend. And it did not matter in the slightest. She liked my books. She knew who to send them to. And three months after I had Esther on the team, I had a four book contract with Random House. Oh, wow! that's how quickly it all can happen. If you're persistent That's why every one of those books on writing begins with saying you cannot fail if you refuse to quit, because that's what I believe. If you just put in your hours and stick it out, eventually it's going to happen for you.
2: When did you make the transition then from being a lawyer who writes to a writer who also had a law degree?
0: (laughs) Well, it was about um, hmm, a little over five years because my first book was published in 91. Okay. Okay. And I think I let go the law firm in 96, but it was early in 96. So something like that. Anyway, I I, got to point out that 91 was not only my first book, it was also my first child. And then there was a second and later there'd be a third. And, uh, you know, I was the sole source of support. So I really didn't have the luxury of rolling the dice and hoping this all worked out. I waited until it was clear it was working out and I had enough money in the bank that I figured, well, we could live a year, you know, <laughs> <Maybe> <laughs> right. if the bottom falls out of this, we've got some time to recover. And at that point I felt like I could retire from the law and focus on it, which, which was great for me because it just meant I could write more and maybe do two books a year instead of one. So that was perfect. It also allowed me to stay home when those kids were growing yeah. up, which yeah. is a real gift.
2: Was there any, you mentioned, you know, having enough money in the bank account to go for a year. Was there any particular trigger that just made you feel like, okay, it's, it's safe now to, to go Mm -hmm. give this a full-time
0: shot? Well, I was practically, I was a trial lawyer in the litigation department in a large firm in Tulsa, which for the most part, I, I thought, you know, I didn't dislike practicing law. I liked the people I worked with, had good friends, but it is very time consuming. Yeah. And at some point, when I was making more money as a writer than as a lawyer, I thought it would make more sense to do two books a year rather than c- continue with this. I want to talk a little bit about your latest book called Plot, Counterplot. Uh, uh just been out a couple of months now. Tell us about it. Plot, Counterplot is a standalone novel, first one I've done in a long time, not ever, but in a long time. And the premise is basically uh, the, the protagonist, Dylan, uh, is a thriller writer. I don't know where I got that idea, but <laughs> that's something I can write about. And of course he's got his series character and he's coming up with all these larger than life plots. And the character Fargo Cody's specialty is breaking into places that are high security and supposedly impregnable. Uh, but then there's this cadre of bad guys who think you know, we want to break into this government installi- installation and steal their super weapon, which is just about impossible. But I bet he could figure out a way. And so they grab the thriller writer and put him to work. Of course, he hasn't got any choice, but to at least appear to be cooperating. But of course, he's secretly, you know, they've got the plot. He's got the counterplot trying to get loose of these guys. Gotcha. And they go back and forth scheming against each other. And that's what the book's about.
2: That's great. You mentioned it's a thriller writer. Some of your other work has been about lawyers and kind of the the legal world. Do you find yourself putting yourself into these characters? Is this a way of living vicariously or is it just a world that you know and so you write about it?
0: Yeah I, yeah, I think all my characters are at least in part myself. I mean, how else can you write them yeah. unless you have some insight into who they are or why they do this? Even the bad guys. I should not admit that. But I, <laughs> I start by thinking, okay, what would cause me? What what could possibly inspire me to do something this horrible? You know, mm. and that helps. I think it helps you come up with some plausible motivations. Yeah. So you don't just have antagonists who are, you know, evil or, or crazy <laughs> suddenly at the end of the book, they suddenly break out and turn out to be crazy or, or greedy or, what you know, come up with something more plausible. It's clear to me that nobody in the real world thinks they're the bad guy. You know, everybody thinks they're the right. hero of the story. There's either some reason why they had to do it or uh, they think they're doing the right thing. Even mm. the people who have done some of the most heinous things that ever happened in history. Those guys didn't think they were bad guys. They thought they were heroes. You're
2: right. I love the the idea that it's not just somebody twirling their mustache because they are bad,
0: but right. there is, there's more to it than that. Remember John Gardner's Grendel, which I think I read when I was in school, yeah. uh, telling the whole Beowulf story, except now from the Viewpoint of the Monsters, saying, why do these guys keep picking on us? We're not <laughs> them. I mean, we're just doing what we do. Or now you've got Suzanne Collins doing, Collins doing the same thing with the Hunger Games, going back yeah. and uh, making President Snow the protagonist. Yeah.
2: You mentioned that this is a standalone book, but mm-hmm. that a lot of your recent work in particular has been in series. Right. So I want to explore that a little bit. What's the appeal to you as an author of writing about the same character, a set of characters over
0: six or seven or eight novels, as opposed to writing standalone work? Well, uh, series characters are where the action is these days. It's kind of true. In 91, when I started the Ben Kincaid series, it was my editor who said, you think this could be the first book in a series? And I'm like, what am I going to say? Yes, of course. Exactly <laughs> what I had in mind uh even though it really wasn't but it worked out well we did 19 of those for Pete's sake and I'll probably do and come back and do another one I mean you can't leave it at 19 no you got to go for 20 Um, anyway I, I suspect most writers kind of like creating characters from scratch and creating a whole new fictional world but clearly publishers are looking for a series and it's because readers like series they like seeing that it's a You know, similar to a television uh, series experience that they think, well, I already know this guy, so it's not going to be as hard to get on board with this. I already kind of know what it's going to be like, and I know I like the author's style. In some ways, I think publishers think it's plot insurance, you know, that uh, even if a person picks up the book and thinks, well, that plot doesn't really trip my trigger, but i got to see what's going on with ben or yep. daniel or whoever it is this time you know so they end up buying it anyway so series fiction is very popular and as you said you're right i had done 9 in a row 6 with daniel pike and 3 with kenzie rivera and at that point i don't know what broke but i just thought i need to take a break i'm going to do something different and do you were this. ready for a new world yeah new world and and really much longer uh, and a more complex story.
2: Hmm. Speaking of that, does it create a particular set of challenges or a unique set of challenges for an author to to try to write about the same
0: characters over a series of novels, as opposed to creating something new from scratch? Yes, I think so. I mean, the challenge is always, how do I not make this completely boring? How, how is this <laughs> not, you know, the, the same plot with a few of the words changed? Yeah. And uh, I always try and think of some way right up front. How is this one different bearing in mind that when people are following your series, they don't necessarily want different. They want some comfort of knowing this is uh, Daniel Pike and he's going to go to the courtroom at some point in this story. So you don't mess with the format but try and find ways of making it interesting within the conventions of the form. Do you have
2: um, like an encyclopedia of this is what's happened, these are the characters, these are the relationships and events that have happened back in book four so that when you're writing book 20, you don't run into continuity problems that somebody
0: will inevitably find? No, I wish I did. That's such a good idea. (laughs) Now at conferences, including my own this year, I heard people talking about, creating a series Bible. And I thought, what a smart idea. I wish I'd thought of that 31 (laughs) years ago, but I didn't. Sometimes I just, honestly, I'll be typing and I'll think, what color are Daniel Pike's eyes? And and to some extent, that's okay. Because I think readers come up with this visual image of what characters are like, and don't mess with that. Let their imaginations play. But No, I think series Bible is a great idea, but I've maybe I can hire somebody to do it because I've certainly never done it to go through and chronicle everything for you. Right, right. Oh, I I I just finished writing uh, this longish essay for the Mysterious Press, which I know you're familiar with. Mm -hmm. It's not only press in the bookstore, and they're handing out they're printing kind of like chapbooks and handing out these little booklets in the store on people's fictional characters. In this case, Ben Kincaid. Cool. I was writing this, trying to basically tell Ben Kincaid's backstory or life story, and at some point, I thought, what are Ben's parents' names? And then I got out the first book, and I kept seeing mother and father, and I never saw a name, and at some point, I just thought, forget it. (laughs) Ben's parents. (laughs) No one's going back to research that hard. Uh, If they do, please write me and tell me. I'm sure those guys have names I just... I'm not as young as I used to be. I don't remember.
2: <laughs> I want to talk a little more about this. I recently had an experience where I picked up a book at the library, looked interesting, read the jacket. Everything was was cool. Started reading it and figured out about a quarter of the way in that I had picked up book four in a series. Mm. And, you know, the, the author did a good job of kind of making it accessible. But at the same time, I recognized there were things that had I known a little more backstory, it would have been more impactful when it happened. Right. When you're writing book, 12 or 19 or 20 in a series. How much are you thinking about that reader that this might be their first introduction to the character in the world, as opposed to knowing that you've got lots of folks who've been along for the whole ride and not wanting to bore them while you're catching somebody else up?
0: Yeah, that's a tricky question because you can't assume that everybody is reading all the books in order, right? You don't want to bore the people who have, been here. all. On the other hand, even people who are reading one of your books every year or two may not remember all the particulars. So you've got to, in short form, tell them what they absolutely need to know so that the book works, so that the ending or the character arc or whatever is going on, so it has the punch that it needs to, which actually you can do if you remember to do it <laughs> uh, it's a, it's trickier for me because I, I never wanted to have static characters who never mm, change you know? right some people write that i'm not criticizing it i've heard people at Thrillerfest talk about how no don't change your characters or have them get in relationships or whatever because it'll confuse people reading them out of order that bores me sure I, I don't want i'm not the same person i was 30 years ago why would ben kincaid be you know Uh, people change over time. And that's another way to make your series, uh, each book more interesting.
2: Yeah, I've I've heard that a lot of people talk about one of the things they enjoy about series is watching that growth and change. So if there's a family involved or there are kids involved, watching those kids grow up as the the main character is doing whatever he or she is doing. I, I mean,
0: that just makes sense to me. I mean, when I was creating this character, Ben Kincaid, the one I've been talking about, we're in the 80s. He's going to be a lawyer just because mom said I should write what I know. And I thought that's the only (laughs) thing I really know anything about. So I'll have a young lawyer character. And how nice it was that I started somebody at the beginning of his career when he really had no experience and wasn't very good in the courtroom and didn't know everything. And that gave me somewhere to go with him. You know, he's going to have parents, he's going to have siblings, he's going to go out on dates when he works up the courage, and he's not always going to be perfect in the courtroom. And that, to me, made him a lot more interesting to write about.
2: Yeah. I want to shift a little bit, because in addition to writing thrillers, you also write, you have poetry books, you have nonfiction work, you have historical fiction that you've written, you've written plays, you've written musicals. Talk a little bit about your work in, in those other forums and just what the appeal is there uh, as you expand your creative world.
0: Right. Well, there was at some point where I hadn't just done the Ben Kingate books. I'd done some standalone novels too. Uh, for that matter, I'd done the two Susan Pulaski books that were supposed to be three. That's another thing I need to circle back to <laughs> at some point. Um, but And then I hit one of those round number birthdays and thought, really is this what i'm going to do for the i mean you don't want to be ungrateful because having a character that people actually care about what a gift right uh, but at the same time there were some other things i wanted to do so i put that on the back burner and took some time off to write some other things like you mentioned i did uh, did two historical novels I've done two. It's about to be three books of poetry. Cool. I did a young adult book and a children's book and probably some other things I'm not thinking. I did the books on writing, those red sneaker writers books about the art and craft of writing. And that was good for me, even though, you know, poetry, not going to pay the mortgage. (laughs) right? (laughs) Best reviews I've had in my entire life, probably. I'm not exaggerating, but not going to pay off any bills. You just got to do it because you want to do it. And I did. And I did that. For, and the nice thing is that when I, after all that and came back uh, and, uh, you know, it all seemed fresh again. Yeah. At some point I thought, wow, there's stuff going on in the world and I'd like to write about it. And that's when I created Daniel Pike and started those books, you know, back in the courtroom, but with a completely different kind of person, And that was fun. And we had new topics to talk about. And then I did six of those books. But at least going into that one, I said, there's going to be six. (laughs) (laughs) Six. And then it's over. The sixth one was called Final Verdict because (laughs) I thought that was it, except I may not have been correct. But that was the idea. Anyway, it
2: happens in movies all the time when number three or number four is the final whatever. And then the next one is the
0: final or whatever because. Right, right. Because the final one sells. Yeah. Uh, So there's there's a market for more. In my case, it's more, oh, I've got an idea. Why didn't I think of this before? Want to talk a little bit about just your process,
2: because you mentioned writing a couple of books a year and you do lots of other things as well. What does it look like for you to sit down and here's an idea, here's a world and and you from that to to finish work? um, Mm -hmm. and, And how has that process evolved over time? You've been doing this for
0: a little while. Yeah. I have kind of gotten a routine down. Um, I write every day, usually first thing in the morning, how long kind of depends on what's going on, but Mm. long enough that I feel like I've moved the story forward. And what I found is that if you just write every day and keep moving forward, you know, you'll finish in time. (laughs) I don't know how long it'll take. Maybe you saw this too when, uh, The late Stuart Woods passed away maybe a month or two ago Mm -hmm. and uh, incredibly successful guy. And in his interviews that were quoted in his obituary, he talked about, well, he had all this stuff he liked to do. And then at 11, he wrote and he quit at noon. And then he did all this other stuff. He liked to. I mean, he's writing one hour a day. It's crazy. Although he said he could get a chapter in an hour and I couldn't do that. But point was he wrote a chapter a day. And if you just do that every day, then yeah, by gosh, 50 or 60 days later, you've got a first draft, and then you revise, and eventually you'll have a book.
2: Do you find that the revision process is less now that you have a lot more experience writing, or is it still the same, got to slug through it like you did at the beginning?
0: Yeah, no, I think it's more, actually, because I think I'm more attentive to language, Mm -hmm. in part because I know more about it, because I've written a bunch of books and also taught it. I wrote a book on style and, uh, that, you know, that's the other side benefit of teaching. It forces you to think about things yeah. that you may have been doing unconsciously, but never kind of concretized it in your mind or turned it into rules, do this, don't that. But, uh, I think I'm much more aware of stylistic and language related issues that I was once upon a time and how to write a clean book that doesn't seem you know, Dick and Jane, but at the same time reads quickly because people are reading thrillers or really any popular fiction because they want a slow paced book with pages of description. (laughs) (laughs) It it moves quicker. And so you got to learn how to give it to them.
2: That's a great segue because I do want to talk about you. You've made a significant commitment and investment to helping other writers find success through Red Sneaker Writers and and lots of other outlets. Talk a little bit about just the different things that you're a part of that
0: uh, that are designed to help writers. Sure. Well, I remember very much what it's like to be in a be a kid in a smallish town in Oklahoma who wants to be a writer, but you're not going to say that aloud because people would just laugh at you. <laughs> there are no writers in this town. There are no writers anywhere near here that I knew of anyway. And I just thought, what a difference it would have made in my life yeah. if I had had somebody doing small group retreats or somebody putting on a conference that I could go to and just sit there and listen to people or be mentored even. What a difference that would make. And so that's how it started. Um, The annual conference uh, that I put on with a bunch of my friends is called WriterCon. That's Labor Day weekend in Oklahoma City every year. I also do some uh, small group retreats that allows me to actually work one-on-one with people to read their manuscripts and give them direct feedback well this is working but this isn't and so yeah. forth and uh next year i think you mentioned cruises at some point we're bringing that we did a cruise back in uh what would that be 2020 basically a small group retreat except <laughs> we're on the ocean <laughs> we occasionally have ports of call that are pretty cool that you can go to but so we weren't able to do it for two years, but we're doing it next year. And people are signing up for it too. I I think I'm not the only person who's ready to get out. (laughs) again. How would people get connected with
2: the conference and the the crews? I know there's a website. Point us in that direction.
0: Good good question. Go to the website, writercon.com. Am I over-enunciating that again? I think you got it. And that'll tell you all about, right now, the cruise, which is in April of next year, uh, sailing out of Galveston for a week. Classes every day, over 20 hours of instruction. And then, of course, right now, we've just gotten past the last conference. But come November, probably mid-November, we'll have 2023, the conference on the website, so people can see all about that. I can tell you this, even though I'm not permitted to reveal any names at this point. <laughs> some really good uh, writers and speakers coming. It's going to be an all-star event. Very cool.
2: You also have a podcast. Talk about the goal of that and, and just how that
0: evolved. Well, we're calling it the WriterCon podcast now. Being a geek at heart and having been to many comic cons and what i mean i'm going to the dallas fan festival this weekend so having the idea of a writer con i thought that is just perfect because it not only suggests you're going to learn it suggests that a bunch of writers are converging or congregating whatever you think the con stands for Uh, and i thought that's just perfect. And so I use that name wherever I can now. I think that's just great. Red, I love the red sneaker thing. I came up with that one, but I think it puzzles some people. They're like, what? What
1: are you
0: <laughs> doing with this? Uh, writer con, that's So that's the name of the podcast now. And Renee's joining me as co-host, and I think it's better than ever. And you guys talk to authors. Who else? Yes. yes we chat about what's going on and we do a news segment. Uh, sometimes we do writer tips, uh, news of the publishing world, I should sure. say, not the evening news, but what's going on that relates to writers that might benefit writers or aspiring writers. And then, yes, we interview somebody and we have had some terrific guests like you have. I listen to your podcast. I think yours is terrific. I appreciate I- that. Every, every time it comes out. But uh, last year, we, ha- this year we had Dean Koontz. Last yeah. year, we had Lemony Snicket. We're, I, You know, we're getting some good people in and absolutely a great
2: listen not just for writers but if you're interested in in reading life at all there is so much uh, in those conversations to uh, to draw from in addition to all of that you mm-hmm. also are into publishing
0: well there's balkan press and there's also babylon books balkan press uh which i actually purchased so don't ask me why it's called that. It wasn't my idea. <laughs> but a friend of mine was running it and she was trying to sell it. And I thought, well, I'll just get that because several of my children are interested in publishing mm. and uh, editing and probably someday writing. But anyway, and that, then we added the Babylon Books thing for other more popular fiction and whatnot. And that was a lot of fun when this lockdown business began. Yeah because like, for instance, uh, I already mentioned my youngest son, Ralph, who was going to school at OU, but they sent everybody home taking classes over Zoom, but he was at home. My daughter, Alice, had just graduated from OSU, but you know this was not the time to be starting a new job. And I thought, okay, you can all work for the publishing company. <laughs> and that's pretty much what happened. And Alice turns out to be a terrific editor. I, I, cool. I've heard people that we publish say that that's the best editorial feedback they've ever gotten. And uh, Ralph handles the PR. He's very good with video and photos and whatnot. And Harry, my oldest, is the only one of us who's any good with numbers. So he's the CFO. <laughs> and that, that turned out very well.
2: That's great. Before we get to final questions, I have to ask you about something that's on your website and your bio, and I'm just going to read it. And then I've got a couple of questions, if, if that's Okay. Okay. In your bio, it says in his spare time, he's enjoyed surfing, digging for dinosaurs, trekking through the Himalayas, paragliding, scuba diving, caving, zip lining over the canopy of the Costa Rican rainforest and jumping out of an airplane at 10,000 feet. And in 2013, he became a Jeopardy champion, which I could talk to you about for an hour, but I won't bore everybody else with that. <laughs> Another episode for that. That's it. That's that's part two. So a couple of questions come out of this One, how do these experiences find their way, or do they, find their way
0: into your writing? Hmm. Well, that's interesting because, uh, uh, you know, Ben Kincaid was not really an adventurer. <laughs> but Daniel Pike is. Okay. And I, but I had him kite surfing, which I have to admit, I haven't actually done that, but I've done paragliding that's in the same neighborhood. And so I'm letting him do all this adventure kind of <laughs> stuff that, uh, you know, I'm not claiming to be any major athlete but we only go around once right so you might yeah. as well try new things you're in hawaii and let's let's try scuba diving I always wanted to do that and i did it and i jumped out of the airplane i, I, I uh, what do you call it skydiving on my 40th birthday okay And that happened because I had read that Rod Serling, you know, Twilight Zone, great writer, he did that on his 40th birthday. Uh, The difference being he'd been a paratrooper in the Army, so he was kind of showing that he still got it. I was just probably being stupid, but whatever. (laughs) That's the only thing I can claim. I don't know how much of that will, although Daniel Pike could do it, so maybe. But uh, mostly I'm just doing things because I think it's fun. Well, so that leads
2: into my second question. Are there things not yet on that list that you you think this is the next adventure thing I want to try?
0: I don't know if it's exactly adventure, but I, I want to do more traveling. I love to travel. And of course, we couldn't for about two years. Right. And it was hard to go on long trips when you got small children at right. home. But as I think I've met, mentioned, they're all... All but Ralph graduated from college, and he's close, and he's completely self—you know—he can take care of himself anyway. So I want to get out more. My wife and I are going to Egypt next month. Cool, and uh, then we've got some other trips planned. My dad, who we lost last year, who was a wonderful, wonderful man, but he had—he he was one of those guys who do the fifty-state mingo, you know, thing. Mm-hmm. Where, We'd go on long drives, and basically, we'd drive three hours just across the border. <laughs> and then he'd make everybody get out of the car. Okay, you've been in Tennessee or whatever, and get back and drive someplace else. And I thought he'd hit all 50 states, but some somewhere late in life, I mentioned that. And he said, yeah, I never went to Oregon. I said, Really? Like you did 49 and never made it to the last one. So first I made a point of going to Oregon. Right. (laughs) And at that point I had uh, two more states. I'd never been to Alaska and I'd never been to Maine. So I wrote people and got speaking engagements. So that other people paying (laughs) so that I can perfect off my two states. So now I'm going to ramp it up and go for all seven continents. Oh, cool! So Egypt, Egypt will get me Africa, and then I've got to collect Australia and Antarctica. That might be challenging, but that I'll one do... gets a little more complicated.
2: Not a lot of writers' conferences there, right? But I'll I'll go and I'll go sledding
0: or whatever. And that's be
2: awesome. Sure, <laughs> that's great stuff. Well, Bill, I want to get into the final questions? What's the genre that you love to read, and give us a couple of recommendations for authors or
0: books? You know, I've always loved mysteries, and that's what I thought I was writing. Uh, To my surprise, in the 90s, post Grisham and Everybody Wanted a Lawyer Book, they started calling them legal thrillers. And, you know, I'm not stupid. I'll dance with the girl that brought me. (laughs) I really thought that the the courtroom drama and the people and the mystery were more important to my books than uh, thrillers to me suggest running and shooting and stuff that, you know, not really credible for a lawyer to be doing, but, (laughs) uh, but I do love a a good mystery story. You know, just in the past couple of years, I've started reading CJ box mostly because again, you know, it's outdoorsy and adventure and uh, national parks and whatnot. And he is a really terrific writer. Uh, Another person who Lee Child would be another good example of this, somebody who is a genuine prose stylist. I mean, he's not just typing. He really knows how to put together a good sentence and a good paragraph and draw the reader into the story. And I also kind of like the fearlessness of CJ Box. You never know what's going to happen. He'll kill (laughs) off anybody or name them or you just don't know what's going to happen in this this series so i kind of love that
2: that's great what's an early experience that informed your reading or writing life you talked about thinking about writing since you were seven or so
0: well i haven't you know i like a lot of different things i used to love encyclopedia brown because there were puzzle stories basically mysteries right but the one i really remember well is uh at some point early teenager uh finding ray bradbury's the martian chronicles yeah And reading that and realizing for the first time, you know, this is wonderful, but it's not just the story, although those are incredibly original, but it's the words. It's the almost poetic approach to prose Uh, really makes this, you know, even in the 1950s when Martian Chronicles was written, We knew there wasn't life, at least not life like this on Mars, and the canals didn't have water, and uh, (laughs) it didn't matter because this was basically poetry and metaphors that happened to be set in outer space. I don't think I particularly write like Bradbury, uh, but that did make a big impression on me and and reminded me how important it is to be in charge of the words, you know, to be a good
2: smith. That's a great way of saying that. I think we've probably all had that experience if you read very much and and really if you write very much of of feeling that transition of this isn't just words anymore. This isn't just, I got to get this character from point A to point B, but there really is a craft to it. There's an art to it. Uh, And there's something magical about when that happens, both as you're a reader, but also as a writer when you, you realize, Oh, wait a minute, that might actually be pretty good.
0: Yes. Yeah, I agree.
2: Last question then, Bill, if you could have a meal with one character from fiction, who would it be? And what would you
0: talk about? Hmm. Well, I love uh I I I love Woodhouse and basically anything P.G. Woodhouse ever wrote, most famous for the Bertie and Jeeves stories. Mm-hmm. So I think uh I, I think uh, do I have to pick one? Can I have dinner with both Bertie and Jeeves? I'll I'll give you two. <laughs> or maybe separately, lunch with one and <laughs> it would be interesting. I mean, we kind of know Bertie. He's He's, you know, a, a little slow, but very likable. And here's Jeeves, who seems smarter. Although, if you read those stories, sometimes he totally messes things <laughs> up. His big solutions often just make things a thousand times worse. And so I'd like to talk to him about what, you know, were you really trying to, were you just having fun with these rich guys who are, uh, complete <laughs> wits or uh, you know, what's behind, at any rate, I know that this lunch would be a lot of fun.
2: Well, Bill, before we go, how can people connect with you and your work online, social media, website, things like that?
0: Yep. Yeah, website. Uh, this is pretty predictable. WilliamBernhardt.com. And I mentioned the writer con, uh, website Babylon books has a website And, of course, I'm on Facebook, too. Is there someone who isn't? And (laughs) WriterCon has its own uh, Facebook group where you can find out what's going on. I have newsletters that I send out. You can sign up for those on my website, too. And mostly I'm a Facebook and Twitter guy. Uh,
2: And we'll make sure and link all of that in the show notes so as people are trying to find you and all the different places and all the different things you do, we'll put it in one spot to make it easy for them.
0: Fantastic! Great, well,
2: Bill. This has been so great. Thank you so much for the time, and and thanks for your work, especially your work with with other writers. You mentioned that I was at WriterCon. It was it was fun to watch people come in, maybe a little bit uncertain, and by day two, feeling like I can do this. And there was just okay. there's an energy about that that was really cool to be a part of.
0: That's great to hear. Well, you know, the downside of writers they're at home all the time typing. Right. So you don't see each other unless you have some kind of event and everybody comes. So, yeah, I love having RiderCon just because I get to see all my friends. It's just a terrific event, I think. That's great stuff. Well, Bill, it's great to talk to you. appreciate the time. Uh, Take care. You too. Thanks for having me on. This is a terrific podcast. I really do listen to it and love it. So you're doing great stuff.
2: Our review for this episode comes from Stephen Waddell. Steve is an Oklahoma author and teacher who lives in Midwest City. He's published over 35 books in a variety of genres, but is best known for his Werewolf Saga series and his young adult paranormal novels written with Carrie Jones. Steve reviews Rise and Shine, Benedict Stone by Phaedra Patrick.
1: Rise and Shine, Benedict Stone is the second novel by British writer Phaedra Patrick. It was published in 2017 in the U.S. by Park Row Books, an imprint of HarperCollins. I've read all of Patrick's novels, but Rise and Shine is my favorite so far. Set in a little English village, Benedict Stone is having a hard time of it. Besides being overweight, his wife has left him after years of trying and failing to have a child. She's an artist, and she's now being pursued by the gallery owner who's doing her first show. The jewelry Benedict makes for his shop is all boring and kind of the same. And then to top it all off, a 16-year-old American girl shows up on his doorstep and announces she's the daughter of Benedict's brother, who he hasn't talked to in over 18 years. The niece's name is Gemma and she is the catalyst for change in Benedict's life. She is obsessed with gemstones and gets Benedict to incorporate those into his jewelry. She also provides gemstones to villagers who are suffering from different problems. But Gemma has secrets why is she really in England? Does her father really know she's there? These are things that Benedict has to work out as he tries to win back his wife. So this is a really charming story about second chances and the value of being surrounded by people who love you. There are a lot of second chances in the novel. The characters are all three-dimensional complex and all have their own motivations or problems to work out. Phaedra Patrick has become a guilty pleasure for me. Her stories are not deep, they're light. They always have a happy ending, but you know you're going to enjoy the ride. So if you need some pure escapism that will leave you feeling all warm inside, give Rise and Shine Benedict Stone a try. I think you'll like it.
2: Well, that's it for Chapter 28 of the Oki Bookcast. Huge thanks to William Bernhardt and Stephen Waddell for being a part of the conversation. Before I go, just a quick encouragement to sign up for the Bookcast newsletter. You'll get bookish news and recommendations sent straight to your inbox and be among the first to know when new episodes of the bookcast are released. Head over to OkieBookcast.com and click subscribe to sign up. I'll be back next week with my co-host Hannah Heron and a special guest for the October edition of Your Next Great Read. So until then, tell a friend about the bookcast and go find something good to read.